Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program. It's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Hello, listeners. This is Politico's Nerdcast. I'm Scott Bland. This week on the show, the White House seems to take a new approach to the investigation into Russian meddling in the 2016 election. The approach involves a lot of Rudy Giuliani on cable news, apparently. We will talk all about that. Plus, we've got an exciting week next week ahead of the 2018 midterms. We will preview primary voting happening in four states around the country. A reminder to our listeners, please subscribe to the Nerdcast, rate us, and write a review. And stay tuned for the end of the show for a contribution from one of the Nerdcast's biggest fans. One more note before we begin, we're taping this a little bit before noon Eastern on Thursday, May 3rd, so it's all up to date as of then. Hopefully the aforementioned Rudy Giuliani is not appearing on cable news at all the rest of the day. But he probably is. Okay. Let's get started. I want to welcome our guests. We have on the phone Darren Samuelson, senior reporter for Politico, who is on deadline and has uh, agreed to, to join us. Thank you so much for taking the time. Sure thing. Happy to be on. And in the studio, we've got White House reporter Nancy Cook. Thank you for being here. Oh, thanks for having me. And senior politics editor Charlie Matessian. Always good to see you. Hi, Scott. All right. Time for our first data point. Let's dive right in. $130,000. That is the amount of money that Donald Trump's lawyer paid to a porn star in the waning days of the 2016 campaign to keep her from speaking publicly about an alleged affair with Trump. And we're talking about it because Rudy Giuliani, who is now working for Trump as a lawyer, made a pretty stunning revelation about the money this week. Sorry, I'm giving you a fact now that you don't know. It's not campaign money. No campaign finance violation. So they funneled it through the law firm. Funneled through the law firm, and the president repaid it. Oh, I didn't know. He did. Yep. There's no campaign finance law. Zero. That's what Darren Samuelson is here to help us understand. So, Darren, get us up to speed. What did Giuliani say, and why is it significant? Well, uh, it was pretty stunning. Uh, The president had denied that he knew anything about uh, that payment that was made by Michael Cohen to uh, Stormy Daniels uh, back... uh, uh, at a previous point in time, and uh, Rudy just sort of casually says in the course of an interview with Sean Hannity, uh, no, indeed, uh, the president reimbursed uh, Michael Cohen for that, and, um, you know, that he knew about the general arrangement, which really kind of contradicts everything that the president has been denying. The president denied this uh, back at the beginning of April when he was approached by reporters on Air Force One. He was asked multiple times about it. Sarah Huckabee Sanders also um, threw in denials. And uh, Rudy basically just turned the script around and said, well, we got to get this one out there. Um, he, since he, he later explained uh, that that was the reasoning and, uh, and put that out there on Fox. And so now I, I want to read a, a paragraph from a story we had about this uh, to kind of explain the, the legal significance here. A payment intended to protect his campaign from political damage could be a violation of campaign finance law. As a candidate, Trump was permitted to spend an unlimited amount of his own funds on his campaign, but such sums should have been reported to the Federal Election Commission. So, 
th- this would seem to to put him in a place that could cause him some trouble, right, Darren? Yeah, there is uh, certainly some legal liability questions that have uh, certainly come up in the course of the last 24 hours. That's what uh, myself and Josh Gerstein, my colleague, are diving in on right now, trying to really get to the bottom of this. Obviously, it would play out over the course of many months. You saw immediately uh, some campaign finance groups jumping on this last night, filing complaints, signaling that it was illegal. Um, I know Josh Gerstein, my colleague, is sort of coming up with uh, a question. You know, this, this we might end up in a situation, I don't want to steal his reporting thunder, but um, that, you know, we might be in a situation similar to John Edwards and that uh, famous back and forth that happened many years ago um, that Josh covered uh, blow by blow. So, um, you know, at this point in time, it seems like uh, we have another liability with the president. Um, obviously, this is something for the Southern District of New York, which is investigating Michael Cohen um, and presumably has, uh, you know, the goods on him. We are waiting to see where that goes down. Uh, one of the federal judges the other day said that indictment was probably coming against the president's longtime lawyer. If that happens, then obviously everyone wonders, will Michael Cohen plead guilty and flip on the president? So, you know, lots of unanswered questions, but Rudy did not maybe do his client very good uh, service last night in uh, that particular Fox interview. Yeah, it's interesting that, that you mentioned the, the, you know, the speculation out there that Cohen is about to be indicted. I mean, when I saw this statement from Giuliani, my my first thought was, you know, I wonder if uh, the the feds just raided Cohen's office and and a hotel room, you know, they, they have a lot of material on him right now. And I was wondering if, if just, you know, this was material that was basically about to become public in an indictment or some sort of other filing. And if they were just decided that they wanted to get ahead of it. Yeah, that is certainly a good theory. I mean, uh, we're, you know, we're wondering why the, the raid happened when it did. Remember, the, you know, the president denied what he did, and then I think a couple days later the raid ends up happening. So there, you know, there's a theory out there that maybe they saw um, you know, a possibility that evidence was about to be destroyed, and that's why they went in. Um, you know, is the indictment happening anytime soon? I, I, I couldn't tell you that. I know that you know, a different case out in California involving, um, I think it was a defamation lawsuit, has been put on hold, you know, pending what's happening in the Southern District in New York. You know, they're still just going through the evidence, if I'm not mistaken, as well, where a, a special master was just signed off in the last couple of days to go through that uh, material and determine what's uh, protected by attorney-client privilege um, and what the, the, the investigators can see. And from there it goes, you know, if there's stuff related to Russia, that could also end up in Robert Mueller's court uh, and... You know, that could take a little bit of time. Yeah. It's all playing out, of course, you know, amid a more aggressive Trump legal strategy, a fight over the president's interview, um, and countless other uh, tentacles to the Russia investigation. Absolutely. Well, Nancy, tell us a little bit about this. I mean, even before this big revelation last night, we were the thing we were all watching at the White House this week was that, you know, a, a seeming that, that shift in the legal strategy, including bringing on some new faces, seeing some old ones depart. Yeah, exactly. And I think that, you know, Ty Cobb was seen um, as a very accommodating figure. This was this was the the kind of lead counsel. Yeah, the lead counsel. And he and, you know, the president has had trouble actually retaining and in getting people to join this legal team. He's seen as someone who historically, you know, thinks lawyers should clean up all his messes, doesn't always pay them. So, you know, normally just just for some context, normally lawyers want to represent the president. It's seen (laughs) as like a huge big feather in their cap, no lawyers really want to represent the president. But he was able to get Emmett Flood uh, to come on. Ty Cobb is, I'm going to put this in quotes, retiring. And um, 
Um, but I think that Emmett Flood has a reputation of being a much more aggressive lawyer. And I think that we're going to see a shift in the way that they're dealing with these investigations rather than be accommodating or produce documents or sort of sit down with the Mueller team. I think that it's going to get much, much more combative because I think that, that there's it's sort of dawning on them that maybe there's more legal risk there. And then the other thing that's been happening in the White House is uh, the president's top attorney, Don McGahn, and the president have had a rocky relationship since last March. Uh, You know, Trump has screamed at McGahn countless times for not making the Russia investigation just broadly going away. He also blames Sessions for recusing himself from the Russia investigation at the Department of Justice. And so there's also some speculation that Flood eventually could also take McGahn's role. Charlie, uh, or should I say Charles Matessian Esquire, I, I want to tur- turn to you. That's uh, right. Just, You're a lawyer. <laughs> uh, the, <laughs> um, ju- just a little bit. Nancy mentioned Emmett Flood, the, the new uh, attorney who's coming in um, to the the White House to kind of take the reins of the, the response to the Russia investigation. And this is someone who's steeped in kind of, you know, d- defending, defending presidents uh, and going back into the Clinton impeachment. Well, I should say that since I graduated law school, like, uh, it seems like f- maybe 15, 17 years ago, a long time ago, uh, you don't want to take counsel from me. Uh, <laughs> but ha- having said that, what I found most interesting uh, about these recent hires is, number one, the pick, or the Rudy pick. Because, number one, he's not a workhorse anymore. He's not really doing anything. You know, he's not doing the... the you know, in the weeds work. He's he's there to be a show horse. He's there to be good on TV. And here he went on TV. He's leaking. And screw- he's leaking <laughs> himself. <laughs> he screwed it up. And so, uh, you know, the, the question to me is, is he just really rusty? And uh, was he sloppy? Or was this part of a grander scheme? Uh, I tend to think it's maybe uh, the former and uh, not the, the latter. But with with uh, Flood's hire, the, int- the first thing that occurred to me was we just saw what our next 18 months are going to be like, which is hell. It's going to be <laughs> – no, I mean it's going to be even worse than normal because this is a guy who is ex- – this is so heartwarming for me covering <laughs> the White House. I'm sorry, but as bad as it is right now, it's getting worse because look at the guy's specialty, his expertise – executive privilege, impeachment. What is the first thing that's going to happen when the Democrats take back the House? And they will. They're going to take back the House. Impeachment begins. So Flood has been brought in for that. He's also brought in for all the myriad of executive privilege uh, questions that are going to come up. And he's going to be, you know, the, putting his finger in all the holes in the dike the whole time. He's also ferocious from every from the accounts of everyone who's worked against him and with him. So you can just see, like, if you thought it was bad now, Nancy, your job just gets so much worse. <laughs> I also want to go back to something you said, Charlie. You know, you were talking about whether Giuliani, like, had a strategy or whether or not this was just sort of off-the-cuff chaos. You know, my experience covering the White House, and I covered the Trump transition, so I've been dealing with Trump world since August 2016 is there is very rarely a strategy. And if there is a strategy, it's the president has one in his own mind and doesn't tell other people. Um, And so I just want to put that out there. The one other thing is that, you know, in the Rudy interview last night, there were some other interesting tidbits that came up that I just want to highlight from people. He also said that um, he didn't think that Mueller would come after Ivanka Trump. Uh, My colleague Annie Carney had an interesting piece about that early this week. But he also called Jared Kushner disposable which I thought was pretty fascinating because a lot of the Republican lawyers that I've talked to over the past year think that, uh, you know, Kushner is perhaps uh, at, at great risk in this uh, these special counsel probes. Darren, what's what's uh, what's your latest view on 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 that and how how the special counsel probe continues to affect 
uh, the goings-on at the White House? Well, I, I, I think people like uh, Ivanka Trump and uh, Jared Kushner, um, you know, Don Jr., he's not in the White House, but obviously very close to the president, you know, that whole world of, of really big fish um, aren't going to get, uh, you know, poked until the very end. This is a, a classic investigation where, where Mueller is taking his time. Remember, he's not on any deadlines. Uh, he never has been on any deadlines. A lot of what we have dealt with in the last, you know, week, if not weeks, has really been driven by the Trump legal world uh, putting out these timelines and strategies, and we've heard nothing from Robert Mueller. He takes his time. It's actually been a while since he's really signaled anything uh, of substance beyond you know the filings that they're doing in the Manafort uh, trial, which is coming up in July in Alexandria, Virginia, the first of two trials. So and, uh, Manafort, of course, is Paul Manafort, Trump's former campaign chairman, who has been charged in the Mueller investigation. You know, Mueller is going to take his time. You know, he obviously has to deal with, um, as Charlie was saying, you know, impeachment and that looming threat. I mean, there's this sort of this Comey test that will hang over uh, Robert Mueller in terms of, you know, announcing indictments going forward, pushing on other key pieces as we get closer to the midterms. Uh, the people I speak with in the legal community say he will keep his head down and he will just do his job. He is not going to be speaking out publicly, you know, in any way, shape, or form. Uh, he's not going to repeat, you know, the James Comey announcement press conference that he did before uh, the 2016 election. Um, you know, it's unclear whether Comey, excuse me, uh, Comey, excuse me, uh, Robert Mueller will put anything down on paper uh, with respect to impeachment anytime soon. And he's not even going to probably use the I word when he does it. It's going to be a report that spells out everything he finds. I don't know when that report's going to hit the newsstands, let alone uh, make its way to Congress. Um, it could be before the election. It could be after the election. Uh, that is a huge, you know, billion-dollar question uh, is when Mueller will finish his work. But, again, he's not on a deadline. So, you know, he could still be working into 2019. And that, that seems very possible given how much more he's got to do. And just to bring it back to the White House for two quick things, uh, you know, this investigation has done two things. One, it has hurt the credibility of people in the White House. Sarah Huckabee Sanders, for instance, has repeatedly said that the president knew nothing about the payments. And then the president himself this morning is tweeting about the payments and Giuliani is talking about it on Sean Hannity's show. So, you know, her credibility, I mean, her credibility has been shot a few different times. Uh, this is not the only instance, but this is another data point there. And then secondly, a ton of people in the White House have had to hire lawyers. You know, you don't take a make a ton of money in the federal government. And they've had to hire these really high-priced lawyers to defend them if they were in the room when statements are written. You know, Don McGahn has a lawyer, Hope Hicks, Reince, Steve Bannon. Um, and so that also, the, the fact that all these people have had to hire counsel also means that people in the White House are freaked out about it. But more importantly, no one wants a job in the White House right now because they don't want any legal exposure. You know, if you're making like $100,000 a year and you have to hire a lawyer who charges the $1,000 an hour, like the math on that doesn't work out. Nancy, what about the the person at the White House who's in charge of kind of corralling uh, all the people swept up in this? And I'm talking about Chief of Staff John Kelly. Uh, what's happened? I mean, you know, we've seen a lot of... Uh, We've seen several pretty incendiary stories about him over the last uh, couple weeks and his relationship with the president potentially fraying. Yeah, he's had a rough uh, few weeks or a rough few months, actually. It was interesting. I rough, talked rough year, rough year, a rough and a half. year. It was funny. I talked to somebody close to the administration yesterday who said, you know, sometimes I feel like press reports about things that are going on in the White House are exaggerated. However, with all the stories about John Kelly being marginalized and the president not listening to him and people in the White House not listening to him, like you can't over exaggerate that enough. 
um, or you, you can't sort of highlight that enough. And what happened with Kelly this week was NBC reported on Monday night that Kelly had you know, called uh, the president an idiot. It was an echo of uh, another report that Rex Tillerson had called Trump a moron. There were eight sources in the story. And my reporting basically showed that, you know, that particular story didn't hurt Kelly's stature in the White House this week because he's already so marginalized. Like the president doesn't listen to him on personnel issues. He's making hires without him. He doesn't tell him about policy decisions. And Kelly has a very small circle of allies in the White House. And a lot of the White House staff is is sort of tired of him and they're just doing end runs around him. Which is exactly what he was brought in to prevent the the end Right. Like, you know, last summer he was brought in. He was hailed as the four-star general. You know, the narrative was this guy is going to bring order to the White House. And now in a lot of ways we're sort of the feeling in the White House is more back to the early Rhine's days where things were chaotic. You know, Trump was like people have described it to me as, you know, rather than having the president and then the chief of staff below him that kind of filters things. It's more like Trump is the hub now of a wheel and there's just all these spokes off of him. But Trump's at the center of it and there's like no one really running the show. Wow. All right. Well, let's let's leave it there. A lot to uh, keep an eye on as we go into next week, I'm sure. I mean, I can't even imagine what we're going to be talking about on the next episode at this point. Darren, thank you so much for joining us. I'll let you get back to, to your deadline now. Thank you. Nancy, thank you for joining as always. Oh, thanks for having me. And Charlie, we're not going to be getting rid of you. We've got a segment on the midterms coming up. I'm never leaving. <laughs> Okay, on to our next data point, which is four. There are four states holding primary elections on Tuesday. I know we had a few in March, but we're really kind of kicking off primary season this week. We're going to be in Ohio, Indiana, West Virginia, and North Carolina on Tuesday night. That's 41 House seats, a bunch of Senate races, some governor's races. It's going to be a wild time. So with that, let's introduce a North Carolina native, Politico's Elena Schneider. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. And we've got Steve Shepard in the studio uh, who wrote about Indiana this week. Steve, thanks for being here as well. My pleasure. All right. Let's just start big picture. Let's go around the table. What's the number one race that you're watching on Tuesday and why? Elena, let's start with you. Okay. So I'm not going to pick a North Carolina race, even though that breaks my heart. Uh, I want to focus on Ohio 12. Okay. Uh, House race. House race, of course. It's uh, a special election and that's happening concurrent with the actual election. But um, I'm going to be in particular watching who comes out of that Republican primary. We've written a little bit about this in that we've got sort of warring factions here, a proxy war that's that's playing out where we've got one candidate who's supported by Jim Jordan, leader of the House Freedom Caucus, versus uh, a candidate who's supported by Pat Tiberi, who's a classic um, Chamber of Commerce Republican, uh, strong Boehner ally. And this is something that we saw play out all through 2016. This is the first evidence, um, the first House evidence of it, and we're going to probably expect more of this to come. And it'll just be fascinating to see what kind of a Republican comes out of that primary. It's been happening behind the scenes for years where you get these kind of more and more strident Republicans coming out of the primaries in these safe districts. And right. that's how the conference changes over time, irrespective of whether you know Democrats are winning more seats and Republicans are winning more seats. But besides the intra-party politics, there's some concerns among Republicans in this one that if they nominate the wrong candidate, they could actually lose the special election in this district that they've held for you know millennia, basically. Right. So this is John Kasich's old seat. So there is it's a suburban Columbus seat that is you know R plus ten. So it, it, Trump won it, but say by I think double digits, but only maybe eleven. And uh, 
And I think that that is that is seriously concerning for Republicans who just watched a Pennsylvania special election go down in which Trump had won it by uh, 20 points. And so they're looking again now at this district and saying, okay, we need to get through the the kind of Republican who's going to appeal to those suburban voters, those women voters who they've been concerned about peeling off throughout the last year and a half. And Republicans, some Republicans argue that Melanie Lanahan, who's supported by the House Freedom Caucus, is going to be too extreme. Um just somebody that's going to alienate those kinds of voters and not get them interested in voting. And uh, they want to put someone forward who is maybe a little more mainstream. Interesting. All right. That's going to be an interesting one to watch. Charlie, what what's your top race for Tuesday night? Well, I'm, I'm tempted to say North Carolina 9, which is the Congressman Pittenger primary. And uh, Pittenger is Robert Pittenger, a Republican congressman from the 9th District elected in 2012. Uh, only because it's on its face so ludicrous. Uh, Pittenger's a fairly conservative guy, yet he's being framed as a squish, you know, a Republican squish, and he's not loyal enough to Trump. And uh, for all those reasons, it's really interesting. But I'm going to go out on a limb here, and I'm going to say that the race that I'm most interested in, and hold your laughter until I explain, is the... <laughs> when... I'm supposed to hold my laughter when you tell me to hold. <laughs> it is uh, the Joe Manchin primary oh, in West okay. Virginia. Nobody's, nobody's talking about this primary that Joe Manchin is getting. Manchin's not going to lose, okay? I'm not saying it's interesting because it's a competitive primary in, in any means. Um, but it is a fascinating race because you've got this, you've got Paula Jean Swearingen, who is a progressive uh, activist running a long shot campaign. She was inspired by Bernie Sanders. You may have seen her in a YouTube video with Bernie Sanders during the campaign, this emotional video. Uh, and she's not going to win, but it's one of these races where it's really going to provide a window into the soul of the Democratic Party. Uh, and I think it's going to provide some insights into where the party base is at the moment. And I think in the past, West Virginia is often overlooked because it's so unique in so many different ways. But West Virginia has revealed some really interesting things about not necessarily where the country's going, but where – uh, you know, a certain um, mindset of the country is. I mean, remember in the 2012 primaries, West Virginia was the place where we first saw the deep discontent with Barack Obama on the Democratic side and where you began to see a little bit of the white working class backlash. Remember, I think it was what a, a, a convicted felon who probably didn't even live in West Virginia won 40 percent in the Democratic primary against the incumbent president. So it gave us a little feel for what was to come in 2016 with Donald Trump. So I'm going to be watching to see what the percentage is that Paula Jean Swearingen gets against uh, Joe Manchin. That's a really interesting point. Steve, what about you? What's your top race you're going to be watching on Tuesday night? Well, you mentioned that I wrote about Indiana, so I'm, I'm going to choose that one, the primary to face Joe Donnelly. We can argue this around the table. I think Joe Donnelly is the most vulnerable Democratic senator seeking re-election this year. Uh, he doesn't have the political brand. Did you say most Joe... boring or <laughs> most vulnerable? It, it might be both. Uh, one and the same. <laughs> I think he's the most boring incumbent. Well, he doesn't have the political profile that Joe Manchin does. Joe Manchin's been elected statewide almost four times, I think. Uh, he doesn't have Claire McCaskill's political profile in Missouri. He doesn't have John Tester's political profile in Montana, who's been elected statewide twice. Um, Joe Donnelly's only been elected once in 2012, and it was a bit of a fluke. His, there was this sense that he kind of fell into it because his opponent had that huge gaffe on abortion. Right. Right, he only right ran statewide because his seat was essentially disappearing and redistricting. It was becoming more Republican. He thought he had a better shot at statewide if Dick Luger was upset in a primary. Dick Luger was. And then his opponent made controversial comments about rape and abortion uh, during a televised debate. And and he sort of fell in. He's sort of an accidental senator. Uh, so, so now fast forward six years, right? Yeah. Republicans in Indiana have been 
looking at him for, for since 2012 as, hey, this is this is our big shot. Like, if I can get through this primary, I can be a senator. Right. You've got two congressmen who've been rivals for essentially their entire adult lives, both political and personal. Todd Rokita, Luke Messer. They went to the same college, Wabash College, and by all accounts, didn't like each other very much in college. <laughs> we, we wrote about this last summer, uh, Maggie Severns and, and, and the dearly departed Kevin Robillard. Who did not, did not die, just left Politico, <laughs> to, to be clear. Wrote about this last summer in this long-term rivalry that these guys have had. And it, it, for, for months and months, it looked like the race was going to come down to those two. Uh, and then you had this self-funding business and Mike Braun, who, as of a couple of weeks ago, had given $6 million to his campaign wow. of his own money, to try both in loans and contributions to try uh, to essentially buy this nomination. He's been on the air since November when Rokita and Messer didn't go on television until the spring of this year. Uh, and and by all accounts, there's there's zero public polling in this race, but by all accounts, he seems to be going into the primary as the favorite. Um, and, and it's just a fascinating dynamic here uh, for probably the the most sought after, what I believe is the most, should be the most sought after Republican Senate nomination uh, on the ballot this November. That's really interesting. I mean, how many times have we seen in the past where there's a three candidate primary and two of them are really just going at each other and a third candidate kind of shoots through the middle and ends up winning. Usually, though, the two candidates at some point realize what's happening and they stop attacking each other and start attacking the new guy, whereas Rokita and Messer have really kind of kept focusing on each other, maybe right. partly out of this personal enmity that they've had for so long. That's part of it. Uh, the other part of it is, though, they they do believe in talking to their campaigns that they're competing for the same pool of voters, particularly around Indianapolis. A lot of the more establishment Republicans, they, they think that uh, those voters have been moving between Rokita and Messer as the as the campaigns have been conducting polling over the past couple of months. And they, they do believe that if they could capture... If, if Rokita's campaign could capture a segment of Messer's voters, that they can overtake Braun on Tuesday. That's really interesting. All right. I'm going to... So I was going to pick for my race, I was going to pick the Ohio gubernatorial primary. You've got mm-hmm. uh, Richard Cordray. And you know what? Actually, I am going to pick that one. I am going to pick that one. I, I also think it's worth watching the West Virginia Republicans, uh, which we'll talk about in a second. But Charlie mentioned the Democratic primary in West Virginia with incumbent Senator Joe Manchin, how it is going to... Uh, kind of illuminate some of the trends going on within the party right now. I think the Ohio gubernatorial race is also a really good example of that. This is the first bit, well, we had Illinois last time, but this is the first kind of big battleground statewide primary in the Midwest where Democrats got really surprisingly shellacked in 2016. They've been looking forward to this ever since then for two years for the opportunity with a lot of open governor's races to prove that they're not dead and buried in the Midwest. And they have, they kind of plucked Richard Cordray, the former Consumer Financial Protection Bureau head, from his perch in Washington to run as this, you know, consumer protection themed populist with Senator Elizabeth Warren's support and all sorts of other, you know, establishment backing in Ohio. And yet he has not quite been able to put away former Congressman Dennis Kucinich, who's running against him as this kind of, you know, firebrand longtime progressive who's saying, you know, he's been for Medicare for all before it was cool that Cordray uh, is a squish on guns and, you know, is not a true progressive in some of those instances. And Kucinich has uh, very little uh, kind of money or traditional resources behind his campaign, but he does have uh, a lot of name recognition from his time as Cleveland's mayor and as a congressman from the Cleveland area and as a 2008 presidential candidate. Um, and also he 
Uh, he has the backing of some progressive groups, including Our Revolution, the Bernie Sanders-aligned group. So Cordray is still favored, but I think it'll be interesting to to see what happens there on on Tuesday and to uh, you know to see what the margins are and stuff like that. You know, it's it's this is a big big battleground seat. John Kasich is retiring. Um, it's going to be going to kind of set up yeah. the general election in an interesting way. I'm surprised that Cordray has struggled as much as he has. Uh, you know, you, you, he's known in Washington here for his time uh, with the Consumer uh, uh, Financial Protection Bureau. But really, he's a state attorney general in Ohio. So he has some statewide profile, and he's really struggled to coalesce Democrats behind him, even if he does capture the nomination on Tuesday. Elena, what are you looking for in, you mentioned Ohio 12. Uh, what else is coming up on the House map on the 8th uh, that you're looking forward to? There's some battleground primaries. There's some open seat primaries. So we've got, first in North Carolina, we need, we're going to be watching whether two congressmen are potentially going to go down in primaries. The chances, based on my reporting as of right now, that seems pretty unlikely in both cases. Charlie mentioned uh, Pittenger, who's in out in the Charlotte suburbs. He's had a really robust challenge back in 2016, and people believe that basically he was caught sleeping, that, you know, the 200 vote margin in that primary is probably not going to repeat itself in 2018. He's really woken up. He's really paying attention. He's mentioning Trump in every other breath uh, to try and get himself across the finish line there. That being said, though, I was just on the phone with a with a Democrat who was saying part of what makes that primary, though, exciting is that if, if Pittenger comes through it and Mark Harris, who's his Republican primary opponent, loses, that's a pretty embittered and divided party that they're heading into a suburban seat in which the Democrat Democratic opponent, uh, Dan McCready, has uh, presented himself as a very much a suburban sort of uh, not Republican light necessarily, but a super moderate Democrat and having uh, a depressed, uh, unmotivated Republican base in a blue moon year. So this is where no Republicans are at the top of the ticket. No one's running for Senate or for governor. It's just going to be the House members who are going to be motivating turnout. That could be a real problem for Pittenger to have a really nasty primary that he's been presented with. Can I just say that the, the member caught sleeping primaries are by far the best primaries to oh, watch. Yeah. Too. I, I like them even better than the scandal primaries because it's only what people don't realize is how hard it is for a member of the House to lose their seat. It's really hard. And typically, uh, you know, in a situation like this, like uh, Elena's talking about, you know, you have to be either lazy as a member or have really bad constituent service back home or get overconfident and cocky. Or have an ethics issue. Yes, but I count that on the scandal. It's the member caught sleeping that's awesome because at a certain point, and you can always see it, whether in the FEC filings or, or with the events they schedule, there is that moment of reckoning where they're like, oh, my God, I might lose the seat. And then the freak out <laughs> begins. Right. Well, I, I was just going to add, too, that you're also going to see that inevitably in the general elections where we're going to have potentially several more John Micahs, who was a congressman down in Florida who didn't realize until maybe late September of 2016 that, oh, no, I'm really, really in trouble here and started freaking out. And uh I think that generally Washington sort of shrugged at his at his struggle because people have been telling him this this whole time. So I think it's not limited to the primaries. It's we're going to see plenty of that in the general too. And it's interesting, Elena, that you bring up North Carolina as one of these places where we're watching for this. Right? This was this is a congressional map that was heavily gerrymandered. That's been held up by Democrats as one of the most gerrymandered maps in the country. And yet we've got at least a couple, maybe maybe three competitive races shaping maybe three. up there. 
Right. And North Carolina, look, it's been uh, it's still working its way through the courts. It's still before the Supreme Court right now as to whether or not uh, it's it's gerrymandered in a way that's at all fair. Democrats say it is not. And so Republicans have built a map here where they want to be able to win with, um, you know, about 60 percent. They've got three congressional seats that are very heavily Democratic. And then the rest are somewhere, you know, Democrats perform usually 43, 44, 45. And at a certain point, if Republicans are depressed in a blue moon year and Democrats are highly energized, the wall that they've built for themselves in in a map like this is not actually all that sturdy of a wall and it can be breached pretty easily. So we might not just see somebody like Pittenger or or Ted Budd, who is a freshman congressman who just got got elected. Those are the two most highly targeted seats, but then we've got people on the edge. So George Holding in Wake County, which is right outside of Raleigh, uh, Richard Hudson in outside of Greensboro. Uh, it 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 opens up some some options here for Democrats, which Republicans wouldn't have expected in any other year. Mm, that's really interesting, Steve. One more primary I want to make sure we cover before we uh, go out here. Uh, we talked about Joe Manchin. The Republican race to face him has been completely nuts. Uh, I'm very curious to see how that turns out on Tuesday. Yeah, I can't believe we haven't gotten to this yet. I know, I know. (laughs) Congressman Evan Jenkins, uh, State Attorney General Patrick Morrissey, and uh, uh, convicted criminal Don Blankenship, a former coal baron uh, who went to jail over over safety. Baron is always a great title. uh, Who went to uh, uh, jail over uh, safety standards at uh, one of the mines that his company owned. Uh, 29 people were killed. Um, they're facing off in this primary. There was a freak out. You mentioned freak outs. There was a freak out about a month ago that Don Blankenship, who had spent a lot of his own money on television advertising, more than $2 million, that he had surged to the front of that pack. A freak and, out among Republicans in yes, Washington. Yes. And that he had uh, uh, surged to the front of that pack and would be uh, borderline unelectable when it came down to a general election against Joe Manchin, even in his, is, is a state that has moved so far to Republicans at the national level as West Virginia. Uh, the last few polls have showed have showed Blankenship sliding back into third place with Jenkins and Morrissey jockeying for first and jockeying for the nomination. Blankenship has doubled down on his uh, bombastic campaign. He's got a new ad in which he he makes reference to Mitch McConnell and cocaine. Um, oh come on. Finish it. What's the nickname? Cocaine Mitch? I've yeah. had Eric Clapton stuck in my head all week. Because it's, a, uh, it's not clear why he made that reference, but it did here we are. Something with, with uh, Mitch McConnell's wife and her family, Elaine Chow, uh, Trump's cabinet secretary. Look, th- there are a lot of folks who think that they've been, a lot of Republicans who think that they've been basically able to cut off Blankenship at the knees and that this is going to come down to, to Morrissey and Jenkins. But you know, this is one of those. No one saw a, a convicted felon getting more than forty percent of the vote in the Democratic primary in twenty twelve, as, as Charlie mentioned earlier. Uh, West Virginia has been home to a lot of political surprises, and everyone that it's a state that closes pretty early on Tuesday night. All the states close pretty early on Tuesday night, which is wonderful. Uh, please follow along at Politico dot com. Uh, we're going to be watching uh, whether to see if, if if they really have national Republicans spending a lot of money uh, to run negative ads against Don Blankenship if those have worked and they'll deny him the nomination. All right. Well, 
Great. Thanks for the roundup, guys. Uh, like Steve mentioned, uh, follow along at Politico.com on Tuesday night. We are going to have live results on the page. We're going to have updating stories. And all of us are going to be involved in a live chat that's also going on during election night. So please tune into that. In addition, on Monday, we're going to have a another chat, kind of a preview edition uh, going on on Politico's website. So uh, look out for that on Monday as Send well. Send us your questions. Absolutely. Yeah. Elena, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Steve, thank you for coming in. Always a pleasure. And Charlie, thank you for being here as always. Thanks, Scott. Okay, and as promised, we're going to turn things over briefly to one Nerdcast superfan, Julian Pinney of London, is going to help us out with a transatlantic edition of the credits this week. Nerdcast is produced by Bridget Mulcahy and Michaela Rodriguez, with help this week from Adrian Hurst. Dave Shaw is the executive producer, and their illustrator is Bill Cookman. If you like Nerdcast and you're listening on Apple Podcasts, rate the show and leave a review. It helps new listeners find the show. That was excellent. Thank you, Julian. Listeners, we found Julian because he emailed in to say he was a fan. If you are a Nerdcast fan who wants to read the credits, let us know. Shoot an email to nerdcast at politico.com. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. We will talk to you again next week.